No conversations, no cash. When we're talking about corporate buyers, you have to have some type of conversation to get the deal. The key where most people drop the ball is in what we call discovery conversations. Because when they finally have a conversation with an executive, they're concerned about what they need to say or they're trying to prove themselves. And so I always tell my clients, if you're focused on what to say, you're doing discovery conversations wrong. You should be focused on what to ask. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 131 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Liz J. Simpson, who's the founder of the Big Money Movement and consulting agency Stimulus. Liz runs a sales accelerator that empowers women experts to secure five and six bigger corporate contracts. And as founder of Stimulus, Liz has helped clients close millions of dollars in business through her proprietary digital sales strategies. During our conversation, Liz teaches us how to build relationships with corporate decision makers, how to position our businesses as experts in the space, the cadence with which we should reach out to prospects before going in for the ask, how to lead winning discovery calls, and so much more. Before we hear the rest of Liz's episode, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our show so amazing stories like Liz's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. The She's Off-Script podcast also has a membership community to help you launch and grow your business with resources and coaching. Join our Boss Off Script community today by going to sewaajpelly.com forward slash community. With that, let's go off script with the founder of the Big Money Movement and digital sales expert, Liz J. Simpson. Liz J. Simpson, welcome to She's Off Script. Thank you for being here. Oh, it is an honor. Thank you so much for having me, Sirwa. Of course. Now, for anyone who hasn't come across you online, could you share who you are and what you do? Yes. So I'm the founder of the Big Money Movement, and I empower women experts and entrepreneurs to land higher paying corporate clients. So I'm all about shattering the revenue disparity facing women and helping them secure larger deals for their business. So Liz, in learning about you, I read that at age 30, you seem to have it all. You had the big house, six-figure salary, husband. But in your words, you felt like you had worked so hard to prove yourself to people that you had completely betrayed yourself. So what brought you to that crossroads and realization in your journey? Yes, I guess it's the quarter-life crisis that a lot of millennials uh, complain about. Yeah. <laughs> But for me, I just realized I betrayed myself in in the means that I thought success was one size fits all, right? Mm -hmm. I thought if I have the things, if I check the boxes, then of course that will mean fulfillment. And so I just realized, okay, I've checked the boxes, but I don't really know who I am right now. I haven't been reintroduced to this woman. This woman is not fulfilled and we haven't taken the time to figure out how to actualize who she is. And so... For me, I just realized I have the things. I'm at the top of someone's mountain, but it's not mine. Mm. So I need to figure out how to reassess and redefine what success means for me. So then that brought you to the point where you're working with women to help us shatter the revenue disparity. So what is that revenue disparity today and how are you helping us shatter it? 
Absolutely. So if we look at women-owned businesses versus male-owned firms, men average 67% more revenue than women. So it's if you look at it, you know, that's if a woman-owned business is, is averaging $100,000, a male-owned business is averaging 367% more than that, right? So that's one part of the revenue disparity. But as a Black woman, if we look deeper, the statistics are even more frightening. So for instance, if we look at Latina women-owned businesses, they average only $51,000 per year. And if we look at Black women-owned firms, they average only $24,000 per year. And so one of the big things with the big money movement is the idea of we're creating revenue that's bigger than ourselves, right? So it's about creating overflow in our businesses so that we can give from a place of abundance instead of scarcity, which a lot of times when I think about like the Black community and Black churches, I think of some of the most generous people in my life having so little. But there's a difference between giving from sacrifice and giving from abundance, which is what I want us to embrace. And so a big part of the big money movement is realizing that, you know, small money is what we call settling. Like, you know, survival is selfish, right? feeling like I'm doing good enough is selfish because if I had a capacity for overflow or abundance, I could give to causes that I care about. I could create jobs in my communities. I could create social change. So a lot of these things, especially now with this heightened sense of the past year, a lot of these things that we feel passionate about doing, small businesses and capital is a great vehicle to do that when we as minority women have the tools, resources, and ability to do so. So that's all about, that's the work that I do is focusing on that. Okay. Could you paint a picture for us of what the female founders you work with look like when you first start working with them versus after they've gone through the transformation of the big money movement? What are some of the outcomes that you're seeing? So yes, definitely. So our work is all about helping them land corporate clients. If we look at the majority of women-owned firms that have achieved a million dollars or more in revenue, we noticed that over 60% of those businesses are working with corporate clients. So, you know, you might work with an individual client and say your average deal size is a thousand dollar offering. But when you work with the corporate client, then your average deal size becomes 15,000, 50,000, a hundred thousand dollars. So most businesses, when they start out, have this inconsistent revenue season, right? They're trying to create traction. And so whether you decide to stay in entrepreneurship or not, if you can land a corporate client that's worth $50,000, that gives you enough cash flow to move differently in your business, which is what our goal is. So to answer your question about where they are, we look at it as four different phases, right? And which is common in the startup world. There's the ideation phase, which is I'm thinking about business and have, I have an idea, I'm inspired, but I really haven't done anything you know, about this idea yet. And then there's the market fit phase. And the market fit phase is, you know, okay, I've taken this idea and now I've started to mold who that ideal buyer is, what their needs are, what the problems they need solved, and how I could then create a solution for it. And I'm starting to offer this solution to my ideal buyer to see if they actually want it. Are they willing to buy it, right? And you know you've passed the market fit phase when people are paying <laughs> for the solution, right? They're, they're showing you proof. And then after market fit, there's the traction stage. And that's where most of our clients come to us, right? The traction phase is, 
I've landed a client or two, but I'm throwing spaghetti at a wall, right? I've had a word of mouth referral drop in my lap. And so I know people want this, but you know, I might land a client in March and then there's crickets for three months and I can't live like this. Mm-hmm. So I need to know how to create consistency. And the final stage is scale up. And so the scale up problem is more, we're getting consistent clients. We have some idea what we're doing, but I can't do this by myself and I need to figure out how to grow a team. So those are the four phases. Oftentimes, we are educating to help with the ideation and market fit phases, but to get past traction and scale up, that takes more hands-on coaching. So those are the four phases, I would say. And they, women are in all different areas when they come to us. In your experience, what would you say is the biggest hindrance to female founders moving from single clients to corporate clients? Belief. Mm. Belief. You can come out the box doing it. Like, I mean, it's very simple. We talk about this all the time in my programs. It's simple. What I love about corporate clients is it's not as... People make emotional decisions that they justify with logic. There's always emotion in the buying process, but corporate is less emotional from the standpoint of in corporate, they know they have a business problem. They're looking for a solution. They create a budget for it. And oftentimes the person who gets that contract is who has proximity to the buyer and who proves that, hey, I can come in, I can solve this problem. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. That's what I hear from executives all the time. I just want people to do what they say they're going to do. And I want to trust that if I hire them, they're not going to embarrass me. And so I think a lot of times we create this belief that we have to baby step, which is a pet peeve of mine. Because you don't have to baby step. (laughs) You have to have expertise. You have to solve a problem. You need to gain access to a buyer who has that problem and then secure the contract. So I have clients who are still in corporate. They're parallelpreneurs, if we will, who are landing corporate clients. We have clients who have online courses or solutions that are more for the consumer market who are now offering that same solution to the corporate market. So the answer is whenever you decide you want to, the opportunity exists. That's so good to know that you don't have to do the whole, let me test with small clients before I go big time. You can start right out of the gate. So now let's get into the how-to. So you mentioned that first you need proximity to the buyer. So how does one create that proximity? Yeah, there's so many different ways, right? And when we work with clients, you have to be true to you. I'm all about self-awareness. So you know, a great way to gain proximity is speaking, right? So if I speak at a stage, it's something about being the person holding the mic in the front of a room that just creates, it's like a magic act that people are like, oh, (laughs) you're someone I should listen to. So speaking is a really powerful way and speaking can be virtual or in person, right? So being featured a place, that's a great way, assuming that you're strategic for where you speak. If you're speaking somewhere where corporate executive buyers aren't there, then it's all for naught. But speaking is a strategic way. Leveraging your existing network. I tell people, one of the first things that we do is identify who's in your network right now, who is in the role of your ideal buyer, who they have proximity to your ideal buyer, and they can do strategic introductions. And also sometimes you just got to take control and introduce yourself, right, as a value creator. If there's someone that you want to have proximity to and there's no one in your network to help you, then find a way to give value. Like Bob Berg has the go-giver mentality, right? And Stephen Covey talks about relationships and how you need to make deposits before you make withdrawals. And so the great thing is if you understand the status quo of a buyer, if you understand what their problems are and you can create value or an immediate win for them, then you can just go introduce yourself to them and provide value as well. 
LinkedIn's a great place to do that. That's my little plug for LinkedIn. You know, one of the statistics I've seen you put out there that I love is that visible experts get paid a certain percentage more than others. What is that statistic? 13 times more. It's crazy. Yes. So corporate executives are willing to pay up to 13 times more for the services of a highly visible expert. So it's it's about how do you position yourself in order to become the go-to expert? A big part of that is positioning, right? You can't be all things to all people, which is a pet peeve of mine because digital, if ever there is a space for the generalist, digital is disrupting it. Because if we look at buyer behaviors, people have very focused searches, right? So if I go to Google and I'm looking for an expert, I'm going to say, I need help with strategic planning for my small marketing firm. And so if you are not focused on the industry, a segment, a problem, you're going to be drowned out in the marketplace. But if I am, for instance, the VP of marketing for medium-sized startup in the retail space that is focused on you know, sustainable products, and you are positioned as that, I'm going to think you are the only person. Like You understand my world. You understand what we're passionate about. You fit in our culture. So now is the time to leverage all of those unique qualities and things that we're passionate about mm-hmm. and really niche ourselves in the marketplace. So first was proximity, then positioning. What next? <laughs> Lead us towards the big money, Liz. <laughs> yes, it's so funny. I had a client who's like, Liz, even your systems have systems. I'm like, my frameworks have frameworks. There it's you ridiculous. go. That's what you need. You need to sell the framework. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes, you do. That's what we need to focus on. So once you have the positioning, then it's about optimizing your digital footprint. And so what that means is, making sure that wherever your buyer interacts with you, they're seeing that consistent, cohesive messaging because consistency builds trust. So you want to think about where your buyer might interact with you. So if that's your website, if that's your LinkedIn profile, if that's a podcast, you want to make sure that that messaging and that niche messaging is focused and consistent each place. Then from there, we go into... So I have a framework. It's called Prospects Only Care About Outcomes. Mm. Prospects Only Care About Outcomes. And those letters stand for different things. So the P is actually positioning. The O is optimization. The C is cadence. The A is authority. And the O is offline strategy, right? I know it's hard to see visually without it showing up. But so after you've optimized, then you go into cadence. And cadence is where I am creating conversations. It's, it's like a flow. How am I creating conversations? How am I nurturing relationships? How do I make sure that I'm engaging them enough to get them across the finish line of cutting the check? And what I find for so many women in business is most are having a version of sales, first and foremost. Don't nobody want to sell, right? It's like, I became an entrepreneur because I want to do websites or I want to teach this thing, not because I want to do marketing and I want to sell. But you got to sell to make money. You have to. And honestly, the where I ruffle feathers is I say, if you don't want to sell, then you have a hobby. You don't have a business. Because if you study business, the lifeblood of any business is sales. That is where revenue and profitability comes from, mm-hmm. right? So until you have a team, then you are the chief sales officer for your business, right? And so with that, because most people have an aversion to sales, we can create a lot of negative meaning for things that shouldn't have it. I'll say that a different way. So if I already think sales is a bad thing and I call you once and you don't answer the phone, 
instead of me thinking maybe calling once wasn't effective for reaching a corporate executive, I might say, nobody wants this. No one's answering their phone. This isn't a good way to do it, right? It's like throwing the baby out mm. with the bathwater. Or you just relieve. You're like, whew, wasn't meant to be. Yeah, Next. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> they don't want it. Let me find another way to get the business, right? <laughs> So the purpose of cadence is to give people a flow. So they're like playbooks where I say, okay, so the first step is day one, send someone a LinkedIn connection request. And maybe a week later, send them a gateway offering. And a week later, do this. So it it gives people a process to follow. And the goal is typically we see there's a seven to 11 touches that we have to have with an executive buyer before we get a corporate client. Mm -hmm. So it's how do we make sure that if there's 30 different corporate clients that I want to work with, how do I make sure that each of those 30 are getting enough touches and enough nurture from from me in order for me to actually get the result I want? And most business owners don't do that. They call someone here, they send an email there, they they connect with so-and-so here, they have a phone call here. I even have people who get opportunities, like so-and-so is interested in a solution, Liz, help me strategize. Okay, cool, when did they reach out to you? 10 days ago. You just let the money sit there for 10 days? It's got cold. Oh, what? You don't really want this. You don't want this. So like, just it just helps to make sure that we have timely, timely responses to people. I love that you said you require multiple touches because you can't come in hot on a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn because no one wants that. You're like, I call them the paparazzi, like the the telemarketers on the phone. Nobody wants to engage with you if you're coming in hot like that. It sounds desperate or it feels desperate. So, okay. So once you've kind of gone through that and you've figured out, this is my cadence for forming relationships with them. How do you then move in for the sale? Or or is that too soon at this point? No, I mean, what we find from interviewing corporate executives is the higher up you go, the less of the BS they want, right? So we're all in the business of people. It's about relationships, but you're going to find that a percentage of the people that you connect with, if you're positioned well, like say for instance, my LinkedIn is on point. It is like extremely clear what I do. I have testimonials on it. I am speaking about the status quo of my buyer. And I connect, let's say I connect with an executive buyer on LinkedIn. One of them it might read my LinkedIn profile. And the moment we have our first conversation, they're like, yeah, 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 I know what you do. I did my research and we have a problem. I'm talking to you because I need this solution. Mm. Boom, well, let's get to business, right? Or there might be others that I reach out to who are like, wow, I love the work that you do. I don't have a need for your solution, but I'd love to just you know, have you in my network. That might be someone I nurture, right? So people are gonna fall in different areas and executives tend to be cut and dry because they don't have time to waste. Their hair is on fire, mm-hmm. right? So, and that's another reason why you need to know what's happening in the world of corporate executives. There's a lot of times high turnover, high pressure. There's a lot of reasons why they're looking for experts like you. So once you identify at least that there's an opportunity to have a conversation, the thing about no conversations, no cash. When we're talking about corporate buyers, you have to speak with them. (laughs) You have to have some type of conversation to get the deal. And so the key where most people drop the ball is in what we call discovery conversations. 
Because when they finally have a conversation with an executive, they're concerned about what they need to say, or they're trying to prove themselves, or they have like blinders on and they're like trying to sell this thing, or they're intimidated. So they let the buyer lead the conversation. So you really need to know how to lead a discovery call. And the beautiful thing is the freedom comes from you should really go to a discovery call and surrender without being attached to an outcome. And you really should be curious about what's happening with this person, what's happening in the world of their organization, what's happening in their day-to-day. How can I be a resource? What are their greatest concerns? What does success look like for them? And so I always tell my clients, if you're focused on what to say, you're doing discovery conversations wrong. Mm -hmm. You should be focused on what to ask. What are all the questions I need to ask? What are the questions that I need answers to so I can better understand if if we're a good fit for each other, if what they need, I can provide, if their expectations are something that I can meet, if their culture aligns with what I'm passionate about, right? So if you lead with questions, what we find is it helps in two ways. One, people judge your intellect by the quality of the questions that you ask. And the reason why most people are concerned about what to say is because they want to look good, they want to sound good, Mm -hmm. right? And so actually, in order to achieve that, the better quality questions you ask, people are like, oh, wow, I've never been asked that question before. I never thought of it that way. So then they judge you as having greater intellect. And then the other side of that is the emotional side. So scientists have found that when we talk about ourselves, it is the same chemical reaction as an orgasm. Mm. So then they're like, oh, I like you. Look at you asking about me. Okay, something about her. I don't know what it is, but I just feel... And so people focus so much on how do I build rapport, like small talk, like how's the weather? And it's like you build rapport by listening because in this day and age, human beings are, are like thirsty to be seen, heard, Mm -hmm. and understood. And so when you hold space for someone in a discovery call and you're not attached to an outcome and you're asking questions and you ask a question and you actually shut up and listen, and then you mirror back for understanding for, oh, okay, so does this mean this? Then that's how you build rapport. That's how you build trust. And then they have this amazing emotional reaction and they're like, oh, I like her and she's smart, right? Mm -hmm. So That's the power of that. And in that conversation, you should be co-creating a solution. So in that conversation, the questions and the conversation should be, oh, this is what success looks like. How would you prefer to see that shape out? So it's like, by the time discovery is done properly, you should know what they want and what they're going to say yes to. And then you move into the proposal phase. And the proposal phase should just be, here's what I heard from you. Based off of what I heard, here are the goals, here's your objectives, here's your timeline. And then I've wrapped my head around maybe two to three ways that I can help you get there, including the ways that you would like. So the only question in your proposal process should be, are they going to agree to the terms and conditions? And are they going to be okay with the investment levels that I'm proposing to them? So that's it. And then you close it. So a couple follow-ups on the back of that. What do sales objections look like when you're working with executives at that level? Yeah. So objections are normally questions or hesitation. So, you know, the things that people are trying to wrap their head around are, will this solve my problem? Right? Because every organization thinks that they're unique, right? They think that their culture is unique. So they're trying to wrap their head around, will this approach, will your approach 
solve our problem? Does it consider mm-hmm. what's unique about us? Do I trust you? Can you achieve what you say you're going to achieve? Like, and it's it could be individual as well, right? Because people make decisions based off of what the organization needs, but also what they need, right? So like selfishly, in my role, what am I concerned about in my job, right? And what's at risk for me? Will you make my life easier? Are you going to make this harder? Is there, are we going to have issues with buy-in? Like, so there, there's so many things that could come into play. The beauty of being unattached to an outcome, and this is a learned skill set, right? We have to role play. We have to coach this over time. It takes time to develop the ability to show up to a discovery call and really be unattached to an outcome. But when you get to that place, you want them to articulate their objectives. You want to hear them because you can't get past something that you don't know exists, right? So you need them to have the space to articulate what their concerns are. And when we talk about attaching meaning to things, a lot of times women will hear an objection and they're like, oh, I can't get past that. That's the worst. If they have an objection, they'll never work with me. And it's like, no, that's an opportunity to hear Mm -hmm. what their challenges are, right? So that's just my thought on that. But they vary. You'll hear all different types of them. Okay. And then you also mentioned that within the proposal phase, that's when you also need to figure out, are they going to be open or okay and open with my price point? Should Mm -hmm. you be anchoring that price point earlier in the conversation so that you're not disappointed when you drop the price tag and you're like, whoa, that's out of our budget? How do you get over that being an issue? Yes, that will vary tremendously, right? Depending on who you work with. So you know, some say, for instance, you're in marketing and, you know, you're offering a marketing solution to a company that does 5 million a year. And you know that their typical marketing budget is, you know, 20%. Like there's some business models where you know already that your position is, your positioning and pricing is within the realms of industry standards, right? And so for those people, they don't always have to anchor. They just know. That's another beauty of corporate clients is, it's not the same as someone writing the check from their personal pocketbook. Like there's there's industry standards in some places, right? But if that is a concern, one of the questions should always be budget. So one of the ways that I pose that question is, you know, okay, I'm going to take the next 48 hours and just wrap my head around this conversation and map out a few ways that I think I can that we can help you achieve it. As I'm mapping this out, are there any hard budgets that I need to be cognizant of to make sure that I stay within them, right? So if there is a budget, that's a way of me saying, hey, do I need to be cognizant of a budget? Are there like hard standards here? Because if not, I'm just going to give you these prices I got, right? And, Mm. And not that I necessarily change my prices off of that, but it helps me to know. Got it. Okay. So it's one thing to know how and what the flows are in order to get the outcome of big money. But what are some of the processes or what are some of the systems that you have in place and the tools that you're using to keep yourself organized in order to really show that professional face that's going to make your your buyer comfortable? That's a great question. That's a great question. One of the things is you need to shore up LinkedIn. Like LinkedIn has to be where you are. There's so many statistics, right? Like 80% of executives turn, 84% of executives turn to LinkedIn to make buying decisions. We look at 80% of B2B leads come from LinkedIn. So that's where your corporate buyer is going to identify who the expert is for the problem they have. So you want to make sure that that positioning is clear on LinkedIn. And you want to treat LinkedIn like a sales page, right? Like if someone goes to my LinkedIn profile, 
you want to make buying as simple as possible. So you want to make sure they know your email, how to contact you, what the next step is, what your background is, what your niche is. So all of that should be evident from LinkedIn. As far as organizing your behaviors, you need to have something that tracks your activities. I call them income-producing activities. So with my clients, there are KPIs we track every week, right? Like, so how many contacts have you reached out to? How many discovery calls have you had? How many proposals have you had? How many deals have you lost or won? Because we have to focus on the activities that create results. The biggest thing for women entrepreneurs is time management. You're spending all your time doing all of the things and none of the things have anything to do with sales. So it's like, oh my God, I'm doing all these things. And when I audit your time, I'm like, but none of this is helping us secure a check. So none of it is important then. So you want something that organizes that and keeps those KPIs top of mind. So like a CRM, I'm a huge fan of uh, Pipe Drive CRM. It's free for like 30 days and then it's $15 a month. So it's not as expensive. And the beauty of Pipe Drive is like, if I send an email to this person, I can easily, you know, document I sent that email and Pipedrive will automatically say, well, what is the next step? And then you can say, oh, well, in two days, I'm going to send them a message and you can just schedule it and it integrates with your calendar. So it's a way to make sure you keep the main thing, the main thing. Another tool that I love is Sales Navigator. So another beautiful part of why I love uh, working with corporate clients is through Sales Navigator and LinkedIn, you can pretty much find just about every executive. So I can go into Sales Navigator and say, I am looking for chief information officers for recruiting firms in Texas that average at least a million dollars or more. And Sales Navigator will say, here go all of those executives. And then that's an easy way of knowing who I need to gain proximity to, who I need to strategically build relationships with to make sure, again, that I'm focused on the main thing. Woo! We're going to have to listen to that portion again and again, because so much right in there. And I think it it is important, as you said, to keep the main thing, the main thing, that you're not overly focused on things that you could be outsourcing to a virtual assistant and that you are just doing the things that are generating income in your business. Love that part. So for anyone who's listening to you now and they're thinking, Liz, you are speaking to my soul. I need to... I've been selfish. I need that big money. How can they find you? How can they work with you? Yes, they could find me on LinkedIn. I know, like a broken record now. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you can find me on LinkedIn under Liz J. Simpson. Just connect with me and let me know that you came from the Office Scripts podcast so I can give I can give credit where credit is due. But yes, LinkedIn's the best place. And I just love to know that you came from the podcast and learn to know what your greatest challenge is at that time. That way I know how to help. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. See you on the next one.